Well, good evening and welcome to the Richie Allen Show Tuesday's programme, the 19th of September 2023. It's an absolute pleasure to be with you, so it is. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, a little bit later on in the programme, Pippa King returns to the Richie Allen Show. It's been a long time. She's a remarkable woman, and, and she really is remarkable. And as it's been such a long time since she's been on, We'll talk to Pippa King about her own personal story, her own children, why she got involved in blowing the whistle on and reporting on biometrics in schools, which we spoke about on the programme last night, but it's very, very, very current. And I want to talk more about it with Pippa King, I think the expert in this particular field of research. What's going on in schools? We heard children on the programme recently telling us, didn't we, about thumbprinting. Uh, introduced as the only, the solo means of paying for things in the canteen. But there's a lot more to it than that. So Pippa will be on with me a little bit later on. And I had a funny afternoon because a guest cried off on me this morning. And then, uh, then I got in touch with a potential other guest. And he couldn't come on, but he will be on next week. So I decided I'll just fly solo for an hour. Because it isn't as if we've not got plenty to chat about. Misha August Tussa, we've loads to talk about. So, as usual, if there's something you want to say, good, bad or indifferent, if I say something you completely disagree with, articulate a text or a message via the website, that's richieallen.co.uk, comment life, or use the app for the programme. And I will read it, providing I can read it out. So do read it yourself before sending it, before pushing send and then you'll know if it's um, if it's possible for me to read it. But yeah, if there's anything you disagree with, please get in touch. Thanks for... I had a lot of emails. More than I expected, really. I mentioned that our German Shepherd, Bobby, who's just turned two, has a bit of a problem. And a number of you were in touch with me to offer your best wishes and sending the positive vibes. And it's lovely to read that stuff. So thank you very much indeed. Um, as I said, her name is Bobby Jean. And we're a bit down in the dumps, the missus and myself, because they reckon she's got elbow dysplasia, which is, um, which is serious. And it's a, it's a debilitating, life-changing condition for any dog. And sometimes German Shepherds get it, sometimes Golden Retrievers get it, large dogs can get it. And even when you look, I think I mentioned this the other day, when you look at the pedigree of the dog, even if mum and dad and the grandparents and what have you didn't have it, it's no guarantee that it won't pop up. So elbow dysplasia, they're saying, and we're looking at stem cell therapy, would you believe? Cutting edge stem cell therapy. We're speaking to a company or a vet down south and there's a really good possibility that our insurance carrier will cover it because it is prohibitively expensive. I'm sure you you, you you would have guessed that, uh, stem cell therapy. Usually they do a CT scan. We've had dogs all our life, lives even, so we know how this goes. They'll do a CT scan usually, maybe followed by arthroscopic surgery 
and bone fragment removal or reshaping of the joint uh, with, you know, the keyhole, arthroscopic. But this stem cell stuff is magic. And I've been speaking today and yesterday to the vet behind it all. And it really is brilliant. And it might be the answer. So, yeah. And he said to me that the carrier will more than likely 99.99% cover it because it costs a small fortune. It's the price of buying a small island in the South Pacific, dear listener. But we love our canine chums. And people who don't love dogs, I have great respect for people who don't love dogs. It's just as well we're not all the same and into the same things. But the folks who don't love or keep or look after dogs, they think we're crazy. But our canine chums, we treat them as we would treat ourselves. So she'll get the best of everything. And hopefully, in a few weeks, she'll be back and walking properly because she's got a bit of a limp now. Comfortable and happy in herself, but um, her walks are being restricted, which is very frustrating for a two-year-old massive German Shepherd puppy. But anyway, don't feel sorry for me. These are first world problems, dear listener. There are many men and women in Salford and beyond dealing with far more serious issues than a dog who needs a bit of, um, you know, a bit of care. Anyway, this is very important. Peers... I'm reading now from the BBC website. Peers have passed a controversial new law aimed at making social media firms more responsible for users' safety on their platforms. Yes, the online safety bill has passed the House of Lords and is now awaiting royal assent. King, if you please, Charles, will sign off on it undoubtedly and it will come into law. It will be law. That doesn't mean there won't be legal challenges to it. There probably will be, but this is very serious. According to the BBC, the online safety bill has taken years to agree and will force firms to remove illegal content, excuse me, illegal content, and protect children from some legal but harmful material. Keep that in mind. Force firms to remove illegal content and protect children from some legal but harmful material. That might be somebody saying that, you know, children don't need hepatitis jabs. Children don't need the 16 or 20 jabs they get before they are aged six. Maybe kids might need to be protected from reading that, even though there is nothing illegal about opining on on such matters. So, let me read that again. The online safety bill has taken years to agree, will force firms to remove illegal content and protect children from some legal but harmful material. Children's charity, the NSPCC, said the law would mean a safer online world. Critics argued it would allow a regulator and tech firms to dictate what may or may not be said online. Now, before I, remo- before I read more from the BBC article, it's already happening. And it has been happening for years. The tech firms are dictating what might be and what might not be, what may be and may not be said online. I mean, we know this here at the Richie Allen Show, don't we? So the BBC continues, the nearly 300-page bill will also introduce new rules such as requiring pornography sites to stop children viewing content by checking the ages of users. And that was one of the big issues, dear listener, upon which this whole 
deck of cards was built, this whole online safety bill, because it's very difficult to argue against forcing pornography sites to prevent children viewing porn on those sites. It's hard to argue against that, you see. And that's how they bring these things in. Something seemingly very benevolent. Anyway, the BBC continues. While the act is often spoken about as a tool for reining in big tech, government figures have suggested more than 20,000 small businesses will also have to comply. The bill has had a lengthy and contentious journey to becoming law beginning six years ago when the government committed to the idea of improving internet safety. Online safety campaigner Ian Russell told the BBC this is brilliant. He says the test of the bill will be whether it prevents the kind of images his daughter Molly saw before she took her own life after viewing suicide and self-harm content online on sites such as Instagram and Pinterest. Now I feel dreadfully sorry for Ian Russell. For anybody who loses a child by any means, especially suicide. It's dreadful. But we have a problem here, don't we? With Not with, with Ian himself, no. But the problem we have is nobody has sought to take on the claim that Molly committed suicide, God love her, because she came across self-harm content online. Because it's so emotional, because it's so raw, because it might seem cruel to be calling into question whether that's the case or not because it might hurt the feelings of the family and I understand that. This is something which should be tested academically. It really should be. Was it looking at stuff online as it led Molly to do that? God love her and I mean that. Anyway, the BBC continues. Digital rights campaigners, the Open Rights Group, said the bill posed a huge threat to freedom of expression with tech companies expected to decide what is and isn't legal and then censor content before it's even published. Yes, that's what it's all about. Lawyer Graham Smith, author of a book on internet law, said the act had good aims, but, quote, he said, if the road to hell is paved with good intentions, this is a motorway, end quote. He went on to say then, it's a misconceived piece of legislation and the threat it posed to legitimate speech was likely to be exposed in the courts. Now, I left a little note for myself underneath that. (laughs) A stupid little note. My little note says, discuss. But I don't want to discuss it right now. I'm going to leave it for for a phone-in. But but I will say this. If you believe, and I think you and I believe, and I hate to say this because I, say, I seem to be saying this every day or at least every other day. If you and I believe that there is an agenda for humanity and it's pretty dystopian and disturbing, right? One which involves taking away whatever remains of uh, our freedom as it is in 2023 and justifying the removal of our freedoms right, and creating a technocratic surveillance society, justifying this by imagined crises or made-up invented crises like pandemics and climate change. And that is what the online harm or the online safety bill, in my opinion, is all about really. Because they've got plenty more planned in the pipeline for the next few years to further advance this dystopian agenda. And they don't really want people to be talking about it. They don't want academic men and women, you know, qualified men and women, medicine and and sciences and, and what have you, 
openly discussing the tyranny online in the online space and that is what this is about and as I said a few years ago but thankfully I was wrong I did say a couple of years ago that shows like the Richie Allen show probably had a couple of years left a couple of years left before you know <coughs> you know legislation was imposed upon us and we were ordered to get a license which we would have to do and then ultimately we would be found in breach of the terms of the license and we would eventually be closed down. I, I still believe that is in the future but when is something I just don't know. So that's the online safety bill. As the Lord said, okay, it's terrible. It is utter tyranny but it's going through and Charlie Boy at Buckingham Palace will no doubt grant or will give it royal assent and then it will become law. So we'll leave it alone for a few minutes. We should do, we should do a, a phone-in on it, I reckon. Now, just a little bit, not a lot on Russell Brand. A woman has come forward and said that she and her friend slept with him and that during sex, he began talking about Ian Huntley, the paedophile and child murderer who murdered Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman. Now, these are just allegations. They're not proven. But that's very weird, isn't it? I mentioned this today online. It's very weird. He has joked in interviews about raping women and killing women. And, and he's done some stuff in, in, in stand-up. But again, I'm not saying that's related to, to any of that. But a pattern does, in the minds of some people, I retain an open mind, in the minds of some, a pattern is emerging about the predilections of this guy. Do you like that term? A pattern is emerging. Let's have a listen to Michael Crick, journalist and author. Spends a lot of time on Channel 4 these days. He wrote a very good book many years ago about Manchester United. Michael Crick. Here he is speaking on Talk TV about Russell Brand's problems. We build up these sort of heroes that we love and adore and we think they're, you know, they're, they add to the gaiety and colour of life mm. uh, and they're funny and they and, and so on. And we turn a blind eye to, the, to, their, to their misdemeanours and their crimes. Um, and uh, it, it, it's sort of what I call the amiable rogue syndrome. And there are certain people in, in, in show business, in politics, you know, I mean, you could say actually that Donald Trump and Boris Johnson are the best examples of it. Because they make it's because they're such fun uh, and they you know they're jokey and and colorful uh we allow them to get away with things in a way that we don't with ordinary boring serious people That's true. um uh, like you and me or me anyway but um and, uh, Speak for yourself, <laughs> and, and uh we've got to, we've got to get around that we've got to we've got to actually say hang on a moment hang on a moment hang on a moment because yeah. you know we, we're getting so many stories now where people have been built up into sort of being gods. And you can imagine, if you're in the, that situation and you've got all the money you want in the world and you're famous and everybody's flocking to you and television producers are begging you to be on their shows, you can, you can just imagine how that in, that, in that situation, you will be tempted to think, I can get away with anything. Yeah. I remember Boy George saying in an interview, um, what, was the, what was the most dangerous thing about being really famous in the 1980s? You know, he was world famous. And he said, and it was brilliant, he said, nobody says no. And he said, it didn't matter what it was, you could wake up on a Saturday morning and say, book me flights first class to Australia and get me a car around here now. And the car could turn up and you go, I've changed my mind. You had that sort of power. Yeah, I think that's something shortly after the Joshua Tree in 87. This occurred to a member of you 2 I can't remember, it might have been Larry, Larry Mullen, the drummer. It occurred to him, that nobody says no any longer. 
when you get to that level of fame where you're known in every country in the world as Culture Club and by George Ware in the 80s, people say yes to everything. And that might be dangerous. It might be personality changing in, in, in what's his face, uh, from Talk TV there and Michael Crick. Let's hear a bit more, Michael Crick. And what appears to have happened here from the, the coverage by Channel 4 and, and the Times and Sunday Times is that, you know, there, were, there, there must have been hundreds of, of women who didn't say no and who were very satisfied with their relationships with Russell Brand, even if they only lasted a night. Yeah. But what you've got here, if you've got the, you've got a, ha- you've got some, and we don't know how many there are. I mean, it's a handful that have come forward, but yeah. now others are coming forward who did say no, um, and uh, and 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 the, the the story they tell is suggesting that Brand wouldn't accept. Uh, yeah. them, them saying no in, in those circumstances. And that's the story they tell, but these claims have yet to be tested in a court of law. And we await the Metropolitan Police and we await the authorities in Los Angeles for any movement, whether they take these claims seriously, if they feel the evidence they have been presented with is sufficient to press charges against Brand, we'll have to wait and see. In the meantime, it just continues to be a cesspool on Twitter. Um, you know, he's innocent, he's being targeted by the deep state, or he's guilty, hang him. Uh, there's no in-between. Uh, Jerry Hayes is a barrister who understands these matters, and he was speaking on Talk TV too. I was coming in and I was looking at the Times, which is updated all the time, and that is YouTube are demonetizing. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're taking no, away no, Whoa, this is, this is wrong. I'm not saying with guilt or innocent, I don't know. But he's been cancelled before anything has been proved against him. If someone made an allegation against you and you were acquitted, or may not even be charged, you'd be finished, you'd be out of this studio and you wouldn't be working in the industry again. That is wrong. Uh, I, I tend to agree. Uh, I, th- th- I do uh, reject the suggestion that what's going on right now is trial by media. That's because Kevin O'Sullivan is galactically stupid. Uh, That's a presenter for Talk TV. He rejects the notion that there's any trial by media. I've said it before many years ago on this programme about another matter. I cannot stand the sight or the sound of Russell Brand, but I'm always honest this is trial by media, whether he's guilty or innocent. And for a talk radio presenter, a self-professed or a self... In, somebody who's given himself the title of journalist, to say, to say this isn't trial by media, how the other guy hasn't laughed out loud is beyond me. What we've actually got <laughs> is a four-year investigation yeah. by two uh, reputable uh, newspapers, the Times and the Sunday Times, and uh, uh, Channel 4's dispatches. And what we're witnessing now, pages and pages in the newspaper, it's not a trial by no, media. Right. It, it is uh, the media... Well, well, it is a trial by media, because if you look at the tone of the articles in The Guardian... In the Sunday Times and the Times, which the, the papers which broke the story, or that broke the story, uh, the Mirror and others, they've got the guy guilty as hell, you know. So if that isn't trial by media again, covering a major story, that's what we're meant to do. We're meant to investigate. You wouldn't have got the expenses scandal of members of Parliament if it hadn't been for the Daily Telegraph breaking the story. Many things wouldn't have come before the public or the. Ah, uh, co- yeah, it's interesting that he introduces the expenses scandal. You see, the expenses scandal was a rare example of black and white. Those MPs were caught bang to rights. 
bang to rights. So it was completely ethical at the time for the Telegraph to run stories, naming MPs who'd been fiddling their expenses. Completely ethical. Completely journalistic in every sense of the word because they had the information, they had the receipts, they had the ledgers. This is different. People have made claims against the celebrity. Right? They've made claims. Now, the Sunday Times says that there is evidence to support these claims. Um, but it isn't, it hasn't produced an incredible, apart from the text messages in America, which is a different thing. In terms of the UK, it hasn't produced what you might call a smoking gun. Just kind of he said, she said stuff, really. So to, to compare this to the story which broke about the expenses scandal is a bit rich, really. There are no similarities whatsoever. Course, unless journalists did their job. So I don't want to silence journalists, and I don't think it is mm. trial by no, media, it but it could be on the internet mm. when you've got two sides. Oh, he couldn't do anything wrong. Oh, he's totally guilty. That is wrong, and it is actionable as well. Whether he wants to take them to court is another matter, but they leave themselves at considerable risk. Yeah, I'll be watching that very closely. I might have mentioned once or twice over the years, libel law is something I know a lot about because I was tasked in my mainstream days with knowing libel law inside out. You cannot produce talk radio without knowing the libel laws as well as uh, barristers, kings, councils and what have you. I, I'd be very interested because a lot of the stuff that has been said about brand, if it isn't true, it is more than actionable. You know, you're, you're, you're looking at massive sums of money. We'll have to wait and see. We'll leave that one there. As for Google, demonetizing brand, um, I've not got much to say on that, really. I've said enough about this before. I've had it here on this program. You know that. You know, you know what happened with our YouTube channel and the subscriber numbers it had achieved and the money and all of that. So it happened to me. Um, it shouldn't happen to somebody based on allegations. It's a strange one, though. When it comes to sexual offences, it's a real strange one. You know, I'm thinking of Ryan Giggs had to step back from the Wales job. He's a Manchester United legend and former Welsh international, and he led the team to qualifying for the World Cup, more or less, right? And he had to step away from the job because allegations were made about domestic violence and battery and stuff like that. Not nice, right? But those weren't proven at the time, and he had to basically publicly step away and, um, you know, basically sacrifice his career while this stuff was was still kind of open-ended and, and hadn't been tested in the courts. What's your opinion on that? Y you know, are there certain allegations that are so serious, so repugnant, that it makes sense for the person in the public eye to step back, or is that just bullshit? Is that just terribly wrong? What about the idea of anonymity? Should the accused, those who are accused of violence against women or sexual violence against women, with the notion that everybody is innocent until proven guilty, should their names be kept out 
of the papers and kept off the news programmes on TV and radio. What do you think? Drop me a line, richieallen.co.uk or leave a message for me via the app. Do download the Richie Allen Show app. Remember, Pippa King will be on the programme a little bit later on. I'm really, really looking forward to connecting with her. Again, it's time for a tune. When we come back, I'm going to share with you an extraordinary report I heard on the BBC this morning when I was out running. Something to do with young men. You won't believe this. Back in a couple of minutes, here is ELO. 24 minutes past five. It's the Richie Allen Show for Tuesday. Looking forward to hearing from you now in the next half an hour. Keep those comments coming in, please. We have films to thank sometimes for introducing us to music we hadn't heard previously. Kingpin, Woody Harrelson and Bill Murray and Vanessa Angel and Randy Quaid, I think. First time I heard was that particular song and it started me off on my Jeff Lynne journey. Thank God for that. 27 minutes past five. I'm Richie Allen. How you doing, by the way? It's drive time. Have you got me on in the car, have you? Let me read a couple of quick messages. Then the BBC report from this morning, which I found absolutely bizarre. Hi to Sarah, who asks, is the brand thing a distraction, Richie? Sarah, I don't know. I, I, all I can do is, is be honest in, in terms of expressing how I feel. I don't like the guy. Never found him funny. Always found him a bit sinister, really. I think by his own admission, all he ever wanted to be was famous. Those are people I find bizarre who, who want to be famous and will do anything uh, to be famous. I don't know. What I do know is that some of his followers are... Ah, I shouldn't be. I shouldn't be unkind or rude. Um, some of his devotees are deluded. Are really deluded. Like when it emerged today that he'd been accused of invoking the name of Ian Huntley during sex, right? Rather than say, that's ridiculous, nobody would do that, and which is an opinion I, I can understand, um, some of his devotees are saying, ah, no, he just, he, he's a funny guy, he says things to shock. No, if he's having sex with two women and he brings up a filthy child murderer, there's something wrong with that, in my opinion. You see, we've got to learn to live with each other's opinions. Each other's opinions, don't we? Um, there are others saying things like, um, uh, we thought it'd be like Savile and, and ha-ha, it isn't. Well, again, they're deluded. Um, dozens of women have come forward and uh, the accounts of many of these women will appear in the papers over the next couple of days. Again, I'm not saying that those accounts are true because I don't know, but the idea that this is kind of dying away. No, they're coming out of the woodwork. And many people who worked with Brand at Channel 4 and elsewhere have come forward to say, this guy's a wrong one. Right? That's a fact, whether you like it or not. I've got to keep repeating myself because some of my listeners, not you, but some of my listeners are galactically stupid, not you. Because you only hear what you want to hear. You don't hear me say that I'm not saying Brand is guilty because I don't know. You just don't like the fact that when another allegation emerges, maybe I talk about it. You don't want to hear it. That's okay. Don't listen. Go somewhere else. Go and listen to a Russell Brand fanboy podcast where they say, Brand is brilliant. He was a huge threat to the establishment, man. And that's why they're trying to bring him down. I don't believe that. But then again, I might be wrong. What do I know? Hi to Mel, who says, Richie, I'm no fan of Brand. I don't think he's funny. But the documentary was off. Mel, I agree. I didn't like the tone of the documentary either. 
as the bit where they edit the girl's mascara and him using that joke. How do we know she hadn't seen the joke and using and is using that line? Mel, I, I, I can't say you're wrong or you're right. Plus, the TV network should be held accountable as, like the programme, the word you... Uh, sorry, like the programme, the word, use a comma there, Mel, you only got on it if you pushed the boundaries. In fact, it was encouraged. Uh, yeah, no doubt. But Brand himself... Made, made his reputation by being a loudmouth as a very young man who would do and say anything. And this is how he got into television, which was all he wanted to do. So, yeah. Hi to Alexandra, and thank you very much for the kind words. Kay says, I hate this trial by media. Remember Cliff Richard? Yes. Remember Michael Lavelle Kay? Remember Bill Roach, the two Coronation Street actors? Yes, I agree. It isn't right. It isn't right. But I don't know what you do. What do you do? If the Sunday Times and the Times receives information back in 2019 that it believes to be credible, it, it gives the info to its lawyers. Its lawyers come back. I know how this works. I worked in radio, proper radio. No, sorry, this is proper radio. I worked in legacy radio. Uh, I'll be hammered for saying that now. I worked in the commercial media. You give it to the lawyers. The lawyers go over it with a fine-tooth comb. The lawyers come back and they say yay or nay. Yes, guys, go to air with that. No problem. Or, lads, that's problematic. Let me tell you why. Now, the Sunday Times, the Times and Channel 4 got this information, gave it to their lawyers. Again, I'm not saying I, I believe all of this to be true. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is they then got the go-ahead from the lawyers. So what do people believe? Do they believe that at that point the Sunday Times and the Times should just hand it over to the Metropolitan Police? and not go to print with it. Is that what you think? I don't mean you, Kay. Um, I don't mean anybody. I'm asking this rhetorically. Because that's kind of insane. There isn't a, new a newspaper since the first printing press rolled off the first copy. There isn't a paper who would not go to press with that if it believed it to be true. That's how it works, the media. Like it or lump it, you know? Um, I don't know. Jules reckons he is a distraction from the energy bill being pushed through at the moment. Jane says, Hi Jane, I'm having one of those everyone can feck off days, but I'm hoping to shake off the mood now that I have tuned in. Thanks to Suzanne, who says the media is fully infiltrated by the government and the state, and the proof of this is that sitting members of parliament have their own shows to push the narrative and agenda. They've sewn it up, says, says uh, Suzanne. And the online bill will stop any attempt to get the truth out there. Thank you, Suzanne. Christine says, Richie, I seen last night. Apparently he was, um, who, you're talking about Brand? Apparently he was bad to his childhood dog and gerbils. He was sent to boarding school as his mother couldn't control him. How true? I do not know, says Christine. You see, I didn't see those allegations. Now, that's pretty low if the media is publishing that sort of hearsay. If somebody, thanks Christine, if somebody got in touch with the papers and said Brand was, 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 ah, was abusive to his childhood dog and gerbils and he was fecked off to a boarding school because mum couldn't control him, that's the sort of stuff the media shouldn't print. Like we said yesterday, how in the name of all that's sacred, uh, it, could it be possible for the guy to get a fair trial in the UK, in any case. It's uh, 26 minutes to the top of the hour. Let's just talk about this for a minute. And I'm sure you'll opine 
on this when you hear it. We've talked about emasculation. I was given plenty of stick a couple of years ago and I didn't mind. I like a bit of stick. It means somebody's bloody well listening. When I said that educators and legislators were pursuing an agenda against young men, beginning at the earliest ages, you know, telling young men that they are born with a type of original sin, that they are born with toxic masculinity, and they are surrounded by toxic males, and that this needs to be trained out of them, this toxic masculinity. Awful stuff, this. We've talked about this, right? I went to St. Saviour's in Ballybeg. I've said this 273 times in the last months alone. Boys and girls together. None of that toxic masculinity garbage we got on. We played kiss and chase. Occasionally a boy lifted his skirt just to see what was underneath it. It was the Holy Grail. What in the name of God is under that skirt? And he got a clip round the ear. I was told if he did it again, he'd get the wooden spoon. Because in Ireland, we didn't get the cane, dear listener. In England, they were sadistic. You got the cane. You got the stripes on your arse. And you were sore. You couldn't sit down for a couple of days. In Ireland, we got the wooden spoon. If you lifted up the skirt of a girl. But we, we got on. We didn't all turn into rapists. In fact, I've... Not recently, but last uh, time... we the, the very first time we talked about all of this, I had a good squint around Facebook and what have you to look for the lads that I went to primary school with to try and find them and locate them I couldn't locate all of them um, but I didn't find any of them were in prison for committing offences against women that being said one of them might be you know a very successful serial killer like that guy Dexter maybe I don't know but um, generally they're all well adjusted lads in stable relationships some straight some gay and they're getting on with it and we weren't imposed upon by, by, by government diktats through schools, using Stonewall and all the rest of it and all that nonsense, uh, to be told that we are toxic to women and we need to have our minds changed. Okay? So the educators, governments, state actors, supranational bodies, they want to grab young men and draw boundaries around girls and women. They want to terrorise young men, basically, and convince them that they're dirty. And that thinking about women carnally is dirty when it isn't. It's a joyous thing when you're a young boy, when you discover sexuality and you start to be aroused um, by, by women. Your heart starts to beat 7,500 times a second and you don't understand what's going on. And any little brush up against the girl or a little caress where she grabs your hand in sports or something and you go absolutely mad. All of this is great, but they want to change all of this. Now, the implications for this are terrible. This is truly awful. And we, you and I, I think, share a belief in terms of why we think this is happening. I would like you to listen, dear listener, to the BBC this morning. BBC Radio 5 Live shortly after 6.30 if you'd like to go to the BBC Radio 5 Live breakfast website later and listen to the entire segment. I've chopped it up, but I haven't done that in any prejudicial way. Uh, to, to make my argument. No, I haven't. This is in sequence. Have a listen. This is... Ah, well. We're looking ahead to our Teen 23 Summit on 5 Live. Rachel's going to be in Birmingham tomorrow as we hear from teenagers on all sorts of subjects from smartphones and social media use, 
vaping, safety on the streets, school avoidance. Uh, we've got loads of coverage throughout the day tomorrow. Before that, I want to bring you some new BBC research which suggests more than a fifth of alleged coercive control victims are aged under 25. Now, coercive control was criminalised in 2015. It doesn't relate to a single incident but is a pattern of repeated or continuous behaviour that occurs over a period of time. This young woman was the victim of it from her boyfriend when they were 13. What? When they were 13? 13? Tell me more. For the first couple of months, I was almost, in a way, treated in a way that was too good to be true. For example, pay for my food at the restaurant. What? 13-year-old boy was paying for your food at the restaurant? If we went clothes shopping, he'd tell me... Oh, I think this dress would be really nice on you. If ever we would message each other after school, if I took too long to respond, as in longer than a few minutes, he would call me and ask, oh, you didn't, you didn't respond, are you OK? I was worried that if I didn't respond to him quick enough, I would upset him, and I almost became to start walking on eggshells. He also used to... Um, make me take a picture of the outfit that I was wearing and if he didn't like it, he would tell me and I'd have to change. He insisted that he watched me in a ballet class to make sure that I wasn't near the singular boy in our ballet class. He didn't want me anywhere near this boy. At the time, would make me promise that if I told anyone what he was doing or how he was treating me, that he would take his own life. Mm. Right, that's serious, taking his own life if, if she told anybody, right. Because you might have been asking, why didn't you tell your mum that your 13-year-old boyfriend is um, behaving inappropriately and putting you under pressure? More of this. I went to the police and gave them very clear, concrete evidence of how controlling he was from recordings of voicemails and screenshots of messages. And they told me that oh, the evidence is there, but we can't charge him because he was under 16. It couldn't be dealt with because we were so young. The tiny contradiction there, you know, the implication is didn't say anything to the parents because he threatened to, he threatened to commit suicide, but yet she went to the police. She's 13 and he's 13. She went to the police. Can you give us some examples of, of what we mean by coercive control? Now, he's, this is the presenter. He's now speaking to a BBC reporter who's following this and other stories. Coercive control, uh, behaviour, inappropriate behaviour, as carried out by young boys and teenagers. So he's asked the reporter for an example. I'm still reeling at this. I went to the police kind of a thing. Anyway... Yeah, so, I mean, the definition of coercive control, which uh, is a form of domestic abuse, uh, it's controlling or coercive behaviour that's not related to a single incident. Uh, it's a pattern of repeated or continuous behaviour that could, that goes on for a period of time. Now, when it's young people, it can look a little bit different than it does maybe when in an adult relationship. Mm. A lot of this happens on the phone and on social media. Let me give you a few examples. So I spoke to some young people, you know, as young as 13, uh, you heard from one of them earlier, where um, they had to be on FaceTime overnight while they were sleeping so that their boyfriend could see where exactly they were and that they were sleeping and they weren't talking to anyone else and they weren't mm. doing anything else. And also um, situations where they have to say exactly where they're going. Yeah, but hang on a second. How, how, how common could it be a young boy asking a girl he's dating to keep FaceTime on all night so that he can 
keep an eye on her. And that's a bit mad, right? I'd be the first to admit that. That's mad. But that can't be commonplace, can it, really? And why no mention of an intervention? Is that somebody take the young boy aside by the hand and say, listen, this is inappropriate, this, you know? Anyway. And what they're doing... Um, and also answering the phone and messages as soon as they get those calls or texts as well. And if they don't, fearing what the repercussions will be from their partner, not only to themselves, but in some cases, a partner threatens to almost sort of, you know, kill themselves, for example, if, if, the, if their girlfriend doesn't do what they want. All of this puts their partner under some sort of control of the perpetrator. Right. So the, the, the issue with this is sometimes when you're, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, as you may understand, you might not realise that you are a victim of coercive control. Mm. You might not even know what coercive control means. So in a sense, they kind of need other people to spot it for them, whether it be people at school, whether it be teachers, whether it be their parents as well. When it's gone unnoticed, it's it's had a mental health impact. Mm. Now, you heard from an anonymous case study earlier on. She's now 18. She was talking about an event that happened when she was 13, but she says that she still deals with PTSD, self-esteem issues, and a real lack of confidence that all stemmed from this relationship she entered in. So there's almost a responsibility from all of us as a society to when we look at coercive control, we don't just see it as an adult problem, but we spot it amongst young people and we take it seriously. Right. What do you make of this? Um, tell me, richieallen.co.uk and the app, and listen to where this is going. This is the payoff. This is the punchline. What's going to be done about this? Uh, you've had a bit of reaction from the Children's Commissioner for England as well. Yes. Now, uh, we, you know, we presented our findings and the story to Rachel D'Souza, who's the Children's Commissioner. Now, what she said is that one way of tackling this is to amend the domestic abuse law. So the domestic abuse law currently only applies if you're 16 and above. So just to, I guess, put that into um, some context, the, the definition of do, uh, domestic abuse uh, includes coercive and controlling behaviour, uh, but it has an age limit of 16. Now, this means that anyone under 16 years old suffering relationship abuse wouldn't be classed as a victim of domestic violence. She believes that if you change this and if you uh, include under 16s, it means that there's a legal definition for them being victims of domestic abuse and can give them those better protections as well. Do you hear that? They want to change the definition and they want to reduce the age limit um, and remove it as it stands at 16 and over. You can be charged with uh, coercive and controlling behaviour, but they want to remove that so that kids as young as whatever can basically be charged with coercive and controlling behaviour of a girlfriend that they might meet in school, that they might meet at weekends, but who obviously they're not sharing a house or an apartment with because they're too young. Isn't that just astonishing? As I was listening to this this morning, I knew where this was going. I was listening to it and it's a terrible story and the kid said if I didn't respond to his messages, he'd take his own life and he wanted to know who I was with and all that. And we all knew guys like that. You know, as, as a young adult, I knew one or two guys who were pretty controlling when it, when it came to their girlfriends or partners in terms of wanting to know exactly what they were doing and when they weren't with them, trying to phone them to find out what they were doing and not being happy when she was doing things with her friends and stuff like that. But those were those were minority types of, of guys, really. But you hear that there, the Victims Commissioner and the Children's Commissioner, they want to reduce the limit, uh, reduce the age limit, in fact, and make it so that a child can be charged with coercive and controlling behaviour. 
it's uh, 14 minutes to the top of the hour. Going to take another tune. When we come back, we'll talk a little, a little bit about striking doctors because something amusing uh, to share with you. As I said, richieallen.co.uk. I'm going to read some comments as well. Pippa King will join the programme a little bit later on. Right now, though, it's time for some Jackie Wilson. It's never uh, a bad time for Jackie Wilson. Jackie Wilson, I get the sweetest feeling. So Mama Jane says, now this 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 might this might be true, I don't know. The brand story was a, a distraction to cover the online safety bill passing parliament and uh, passing the House of Lords. Maybe. I don't know. I have no idea. It's the sort of thing they do. We've mentioned a couple of times on this program, there's a great American saying about that, you know, one big fart in a room, one big fart will cover up lots of smaller emissions, you know. So, yeah, possibly. But um, I suppose that metaphor doesn't work when it comes to the online safety bill, because that's major in terms of what what it means for free speech and for, for independent media. Like uh, like this program, so yeah, interesting. Thanks uh, again for that, Jane. Now Zephron makes a good point about Russell Brand. It it has to be acknowledged. This is a good point. It was said he says Zephron that Brand's sperm was frozen from this rape case from how many years ago? Isn't that a bit suspicious? Kind of like convenient, and I suppose them the text messages are impossible to fake. He says that's a good point. You see, I, I, I like it when our listeners, as they uh, generally do now, to be fair, make interesting points. This is a good point. Yes, if the lady in question is telling the, the truth when she says she was raped at his apartment in Los Angeles and went to the, the police and gave, handed her underwear over and provided samples and those were frozen, why wasn't it taken any further at that particular point in time? This is a very good question. And this is not answered by the Sunday Times or the Times. There was no conclusion in terms of when they told this story on Saturday night on the programme, they told the story and just left it hanging, basically. The woman said that they have her samples. Now, they didn't follow that up by, by saying that at the time it didn't proceed to the district attorney because or uh, she decided at the time not to pursue. They didn't make that clear, or at least I didn't think they made that clear. You might have got uh, a different uh, take on it yourself from watching it. I don't know. But it's a good question. Why wasn't that taken forward then? These are questions I would ask, you see, if I was given access to, to the people involved. But I'm not, and, and I never will be, so I don't know. I don't know. On the, 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 the children and this idea of removing this 16-year-old guideline, not guideline, but this, um, you, you can only be charged with coercive and controlling behaviour when you are 16 or above. Removing that, Faisal reckons it is a plain lie as that victims of coercive abuse or bullying cannot be protected without being able to charge someone under 16. It's a lie, says Faisal. Baird says, I've had a couple of girlfriends who behaved like that. Lucy says, my godson who's 15. Um, 
his girlfriend and he, they spend the night on FaceTime. Obviously in their own bedrooms, in their own homes. My best friend, his mother, has turned his phone off while he's been sleeping several times. The couple are sleeping together conceptually or consensually, says Lucy. I think you say consensually, you might mean conceptually. That's very interesting. Very interesting, yeah. So mum comes in, sees he's still on FaceTime and, uh, and turns it off. Very good. Very, very good. Colin says, shouldn't real journalists be investigating the massive rise in excess deaths at the moment and the scandalous death and harm being caused by the jabs? But Colin, that's obvious. I mean, that goes without saying. But one shouldn't, you don't have to exclude one in favour of the other, my friend. You know, yes, of course, the media should be reporting on and investigating excess deaths and vaccine harm, of course, absolutely. But not at the expense of everything else. There are other stories as well, you know. If um, if this is genuine, it's a legitimate pursuit by the newspapers involved. If it's genuine. Thank you for these messages. They are many. And if I'm not reading your message, it's because I think you're an idiot. Um, because there are some idiots on the um, comment live tonight. There always are, you know. They can't play nice. They can't just make comments without being personal. You just said idiots, Richie. You're being personal. Well, I'm not because I'm not naming anybody. But they know who they are. If I'm not reading you out, it's because you're an idiot. You really, you're an idiot. And you know that. Uh, David says, John Lennon got the Beatles in trouble with Bible Belt America when he was misquoted. That's right. He was commenting on the Beatlemania and saying, it's crazy. It's like we're bigger than God. The newspaper headline was, of course, Lennon, we're bigger than God. That's right. Equally, when Trump made a similar observation about the fame monster, he gave the worst possible example of bad behaviour he could imagine, getting away with. So the quote became Trump and then slash grab women by the, yeah, by that word. But the problem is, David, I have a, not, it's not your problem. I have a different opinion when it comes to Donald Trump. Let's talk briefly about doctors and nurses and minimum minimum or minimal service levels in hospitals. So doctors, according to the Times today in the UK, will be ordered off the picket line to ensure safety in hospitals because ministers are seeking to blunt the impact on the NHS of nightmarish, that's a quote, industrial disputes. Clinical staff deemed critical to safety will risk being sacked if they refuse to work under new plans to ensure minimum service levels in hospitals, with junior doctors and consultants this week poised to walk out together for the first time. Right? Pay and conditions. We want more. Say doctors, say nurses. Industrial action has been going on for months and months now. Waiting lists. Well, they get longer and longer and longer. Millions waiting for treatment on the NHS at the moment, right? And um, ministers are saying, the government is saying, we need to legislate for this to protect patients because we cannot have hospitals short-staffed in such a dangerous way. 
Okay, let's hear Health Secretary Stephen Barclay speaking to LBC Radio about this earlier today. Barclay. A a junior doctor uh, starting on the ward uh, this August will get a pay rise of up to 10.3%. The average uh, pay rise for junior doctors is 8.8%. And I think many of your listeners, Nick, would would hear that and think, well, that's significantly more than they themselves uh, are receiving. So what we're bringing forward with these minimum service levels is is about having time-critical services in hospital protected, such as chemotherapy, such as dialysis, uh, and having that whilst recognising people's reasonable right to strike. That's Barclay speaking to LBC. Now, what made me laugh, we never miss an opportunity on this programme to have a go at the entity that is LBC Radio's James O'Brien, the David Brent-esque narcissist on steroids. Um, On this same story, O'Brien rants about it in the kind of, how do I make the plight of doctors um, and nurses and industrial action and waiting lists? How do I make it all about me, only James O'Brien? I can't quite believe where we are, to be honest with you. Doctors would be forced to work during strikes. Now, I, I think if I was forced to work during a strike, the quality of the show would not be as great as you have come to expect every morning. If I was on strike and there was some sort of legal mechanism by which they could frog march me into this studio, handcuff me to this chair and force me to burble into this microphone, even if I was trying my hardest to do my best, which would quite (laughs) frankly be unlikely, I would not be on my usual scintillating form. I'd I'd be discombobulated inside. My stomach would be churning. He, He isn't joking. This isn't irony, by the way. sense of resentment I felt at being manhandled into the studio would be very difficult to dissipate. I'd, I'd be, you know, I'd be cross and sad and scared. I'd be forced into... I don't think that is going to happen to doctors, for the record. But what the hell are we even thinking when we contemplate the idea of forcing doctors to work during strikes? Yeah. I don't even begin to understand it. This is the Richie Allen Show, Tuesday's programme. You're very welcome to it. Thanks for your messages. They are legion. Um, Sean says, can the doctors and the government get charged with coercive control with the continuous nagging to get a flu or a COVID shot? I don't think so, Sean. No, but I don't think it's too difficult to stop the text messages. I think you can contact your surgery. It's what I did back in 2021, early 2021, mid-2021. When did fit, young, handsome, gorgeous, baldy men like me get invited to come forward. I can't remember. It would have been spring 2021. And I ignored the first couple of messages. But after message three, I contacted them and basically told them to fake off. And to uh, cease and desist. Do not send me any more because I won't be coming forward. And it stopped. So if you are finding these messages appearing on your phone, get in touch with them and tell them to stop. You don't want their messages. You would prefer they removed your phone number from the database they are using. It's as simple as that, you know. Conan says, Richie, I enjoyed yesterday's chat about Russell Brand. In retrospect, he says, I think you might have been a little preoccupied with your axe to grind with the trucers. It's pretty obvious to me, says uh, Conan. Uh, Brand is red-pilling a lot of people, like it or lump it. He's a gateway for many, says Conan. Anyway, he says, love the show. And that's a legitimate point of view, Conan. And you're entitled to it, but as you know, I disagree with it. I believe that Brand and, and others are 
basically system creations. The system must build into... If you think of the Matrix as the analogy, and I've never done that because other people have done it. I don't want to be plagiarising other people. But take the Matrix as the analogy. And in the film The Matrix, the Matrix itself, right, which is the the dream world for people who 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 to keep them imagining they're living this life on earth when in reality they're in a cocoon somewhere providing power for machines in the scorched earth real world right now in the film the the matrix or the machines program into the matrix um resistance to 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 it you know, because the machines realise that even with all of that control and even with all of these human bodies locked into these cocoons, suspended in this fluid, right, where their the, the umbilical cord is, is, is sucking energy from them while they're dreaming about life on Earth, the machines realise that, that nothing is foolproof, that people will still, in their dream worlds, begin to question what's going on. So the machines present to, uh, inside the matrix, present resistance to themselves. It provides opposition to itself. And that is what I believe in. I, I have no problem during a phone-in program with people coming on to tell me why they think I'm wrong. In fact, I'd love it because we don't get enough debate. There's too much consensus in the independent media. And one of the reasons for that, of course, is those who disagree with us will for the most part, will not come on to my eternal annoyance. So I get that. But there's still too much consensus. If you think I'm talking bollocks, and I might be, get on the programme and make an articulate argument. I believe that brand operating on YouTube, which is the mainstream media, and until today, making several thousand pounds per video, talking about the jabs and the lockdowns, and not being demonetized or deleted on YouTube. It's some evidence that Brand, along, as I said, with Tucker Carlson and others, that's the system saying, here's the, here's the pressure valve. Here's where you'll go, you know, to discuss these issues. Or, in the case of YouTube videos and podcasts, it's not to discuss, it's to be told what you already know. And out of that, I've always believed, comes inaction. And I've said this uh, many a time on the programme. It keeps coming up. It's a bugbear for me. I've said it. I had a rant here a couple of years ago when I was really down in the dumps about all the COVID nonsense. You know, saying that, you know, sitting in... And I, and I was wrong at the time. My intentions were good, but, but, but I, was, I, was, I was wrong and I was right. I was saying, what's the point in coming here to hear stuff? or to hear things, or discussions, you've heard previously, if you're not going to take the information and do something with it. And of course, people will fire back at me now, messages saying, oh, people are doing, no, they're not, people are not doing anything. They're not. Full stop. Nobody is doing anything except screaming at one another on social media platforms, turning up to meetings with like-minded people, who know the same stuff you know, nothing is happening. And in large part to creations like Brand and Carson and others, Messiah or Messianic type figures, Pied Pipers, I think as Mark Boyersky once called them, 
And that's my opinion. Conan reckons, no, he's red-pilling people and he's a gateway. He might be. But what's going to come out of it? When, when are we going to see torches and pitchforks and people driven out of government buildings and palaces by people who've said we've had enough? That is never going to happen in the current paradigm. It just is not. We'll continue to plug away and assure one another that this is a pile of shite. But ultimately, is that good enough? Is that good enough? Is that doing enough to prevent, as I called it earlier, the technocratic, dystopian, diabolical um, world that is... I reckon it's halfway built now, to be honest. It's coming up for three minutes. In fact, four minutes past the hour. It's time I take a tune. And when I come back, Pippa King will be with me. It's uh, going, It's so lovely to be welcoming Pippa King back uh, to this programme. Biometrics in school. Pick pippaking.blogspot.com. Do check her out if you haven't before. George Michael then on The Richie Allen Show and then more chat coming your way. Like no other. Right, it's uh, seven minutes past the hour. That's George Michael and Flawless on The Richie Allen Show. Before we welcome Pippa back to the show, a uh, nice message from Kay, kind of sums it up really. Uh, Richie, thanks for reading out my comment with regards to Russell Brand. I'm mulling over your reply. It's good to have another point of view. It's one of the reasons I like the show. That's from Kay. Thanks, Kay. That's the whole point of it, right? I will reflect every point of view. Doesn't matter, matter even whether I agree with it or not. But for some, and maybe I'm wrong, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they are in the minority. They just cannot stand it when others disagree. Instead of just saying, all right, fair enough, you see it a bit differently. And I think that's pretty commonplace in the indie media, and it's not good. Anyway, none of that matters now. My next guest is um, a lady who's not been with us for, for some time, amazingly, really, uh, because she graced my radio and television programmes for uh, for years. She, we, we talked last night with Rob, and we've done it quite a, quite a bit recently, about um, biometrics in schools. Well, nobody has been speaking about biometrics in schools as long as Pippa King. It goes back to 2005 for her, when her six and seven-year-olds um, were nearly fingerprinted, would you believe it, for a library system in their school. Pippa got in touch with the head teacher. And I suppose that began a bit of um, a life's work for her because she's worked on, on raising awareness about this ever since, right? Pippaking.blogspot.com, uh, renowned really as an expert in, in this particular field. It's a, a real pleasure to welcome her back to the programme. Pippa, welcome back. How are you? Oh, thank you, Richie. I'm good. How are you? I'm absolutely brilliant. And your, your life is, it's not turned upside down at all, but it's changed incredibly since we last spoke we might talk about that later on but your your um life circumstances and where you live now is completely changed and i'm fascinated by by mm. all of that Be- because it's been a while right to say the least and uh i suppose over the covid thing 
programs like this have definitely probably attracted maybe people listening who maybe previously would never have given us a, a second thought. Would you like to start there, if you don't mind, go back to 2005, where this began? Because it's so relevant now. I mean, this is a serious an issue, as I'm covering at the moment, because of the speed of it, right? But um, this goes back nearly 20 years uh, for you. What happened back in 2005? Thank you. So in 2005, my two sons were at primary school and I was on the PTA and I walked into the small school library because there was only one class per year group. So we're only talking maybe 160 kids in this primary school. And I saw a credit card sized fingerprint scanner on the table. And just from pure coincidence, as these things happen in life, I'd read an article about two years, two weeks earlier on the internet about these fingerprint scanners going into schools to help primary school children just wander in and out of libraries and check out books uh, themselves rather than having to use a member of staff. And I remember thinking, that's just ridiculous. And then the next thing I see, there's one in the school library. So I sort of went to the head teacher because we hadn't had any information about it. And bearing in mind back in 2005, Nobody in society was using biometrics. We weren't using them to get into gyms. They weren't on our phones. You know, and I thought, this is just ridiculous. So I asked the head teacher, I said, you know, when are you going to ask for permission for you to take my kids' fingerprints? Because you're not going to get it, basically. (laughs) Because, I mean, anybody who's had a child at primary or high school, you have to sign a whole load of permissions for all sorts of different things. And she just looked me square in the face and just said, I don't need permission to take their fingerprint. And I, I thought, how can she not? And um, so anyway, to, to, to the, my, my next port of call was I went home completely baffled that she didn't need my permission. And I sort of, for the first time in my life, um, because I'm a piano teacher, I don't have anything to do with legislation or parliament. Um, I started to look at the Data Protection Act. Um, I think it was 1998. So it was fairly up to date. But so basically parents are data controllers for their kids and that's why parents that's why schools have to ask you for information so up to the age of 16 we're in charge of all our kids data and there's something called sensitive personal data which lists religion um all sorts whether whether you're in a union whether you've had got a prison record and and the schools have to ask you for that but because biometric technology wasn't around in 1998 it wasn't included in this sensitive personal information so I thought, well, do you know what? We need to get the law changed. <laughs> so, so um, as you do, <laughs> as you I do, sort yeah. of, <laughs> uh, I, I have no idea how to do it, but I thought, well, I'll start writing to the education secretary, the shadow education secretary. And I just complete, completely went to the top. And I did get some responses back. I mean, the Conservatives at that time who were in opposition and the Lib Dems had no idea this technology was in schools. I didn't really get a response from the Labour Party who were in in power at the time. So, and they didn't ever really respond to me other than when I asked them for information via freedom of information requests. Um, But nobody had any idea of how many schools were using it, what sort of companies were operating in these schools, how many children had their fingerprints on a database, whether it was a database that the school held, whether it was a fingerprint database that the companies held, who knew? And um, so I went, back on the internet and found the article that I had read a couple of weeks earlier and got in touch with the author of the article who was a lovely woman called Terry Doughty. She was running a a small little action group on children's rights called Action on Rights for Children and I got in touch with her and said you know I really feel like we need to 
do something about this. You know, my kids are primary school age and they don't need to be taught that it's okay in order for them to get a book out the library. They need to give a fingerprint. I mean, we don't do that in society. Well, we didn't then. And so she sort of said, okay, well, I've had a couple of parents around the country that have got in touch and are concerned. Do you want to help organise, you know, a meet-up and see what we can do? So that there began from 2006, really, through to 2010, and a little bit longer than that, trips down to London from where I was based in Yorkshire, meeting up with these parents and Terry Doughty. She was brilliant because she put us in touch with Privacy International, uh, No to I Do, No to ID, who were a huge help at the time because at, the, at that point in time, Tony Blair was trying to get a biometric ID card for every citizen through, and there was a big backlash against that. And Phil Booth, who ran No to ID, was very helpful to us because he saw the fingerprinting in schools issue as a well, if we're successful as a campaign group, no to ID, getting the national ID card, biometric ID card banned, then all government has got to do is wait another 20 or 30 years, introduce it again. And you've got that, as was then school population, using their fingerprints for very mundane everyday activities, just to not think twice about saying, yeah, OK, give them a fingerprint. You had it when I was at school. So... Um, so during the course of 2005 to 2010, schools, it had gone into secondary schools, it was in primary schools, schools were using it for cashless catering, library systems, registration, door access, photocopying, locker access, monetary pendants, uh, payments, laptop access, and also vending machines, any possible interaction that a child could have for whatever reason with a computer that, that you they would stick a fingerprint pad on it how did that happen and, how, how did that happen without wider public knowledge of it? it because look at that particular time i was living and working in spain pivot but i was reading the papers and i'm interested in this type of thing and i don't recall and when i first spoke with you and we touched on this years ago I don't remember the papers or anybody writing an article saying, hey, do you realise what's going on in our schools, that children are being fingerprinted to access the photocopier and the vending machine? I mean, it just wasn't known. Why was that? Was it just not being reported on? There tended to be articles in local papers where they, you know, they'd gone to the local paper, different parents had gone to local papers and they'd reported on it. I think in that amount of time from 2005 to 2010 John Harris did an article in the Times on it and we had a double spread in the Daily Mail and that was it and I think the the, the reason why it really didn't sort of get it in wider international coverage so much so really was because we were the only country globally doing it our data protection act was 1998 was sort of viewed as a, a sieve um, it, it let loads, loads of loopholes like this come through it, whereas the other data protection acts in European countries and in the States were a little tighter. The, other, the only other place, surprise, that was doing it was China. And some of the trials, certainly for the fingerprint system that my kids had in their school, were, were done in China. And the, the, um, the hardware and software that was being used that this particular company, Micro Librarians, was using was supplied by an American company called Digital Persona, which essentially has supplied Guantanamo Bay with these things. This was ex-military, second-hand hardware and software that was being used in UK schools. And because um, 
sort of that sort of let the floodgate open because Michael Librarians had written a letter to the Information Commissioner in the UK who oversees the Data Protection Act. And basically, this is in 2001 and said, you know, it's OK if we use these fingerprint scanners in schools. I mean, to be fair, they asked. And the Information Commissioner said, well, yeah, I think so. It doesn't, you know, you're not breaking the law, which, of course, they weren't because the Data Protection Act didn't include biometrics. And the Commissioner at the time sort of commented that, well, we don't think it'll be able to be re-engineered. And as far as we can see, it's not a threat to the children, which, of course, 20 years on, and anybody really with high, sort of, with any sort of foresight at the time would have thought, well, hang on a minute, obviously technology is progressing. And it was interesting because there was a handful via Action on Rights for Children, of about four to six parents that were really quite active. And half of those were from the tech industry because they were coming at it from the point of view of it's, this is completely hackable, completely transferable information. It needs to be secure for the next 60 or 70 years, which we can't even guarantee, you know, top secret stuff is now. So they said, and they were coming at it from this point of view. And um, and so, so, so we were getting questions asked in Parliament. And we'd go and, you know, there'd be a couple of those parents that would go and visit with, the Conservative and Lib Dem opposition members um, of education. But as I say, the Labour government at the time wouldn't entertain even talking to us <laughs> email or face to face. So, I mean, their attitude was schools aren't breaking the law, which they weren't because it needed updating. So, that was, so my thing was to get the Data Protection Act updated. And the Conservative and Lib Dem members of Parliament, when we went down to see them, sort of said, you know, 20, 2010, the general election's coming up. If we get in power, we will um, we'll, we'll sort this out, basically. Brilliant. So they got in power and had a coalition. And so sort of gave them a few months, sort of, can we come down and speak to you about sorting this out? <laughs> and given their due, in, in 2011, they introduced something called the Protection of Freedoms Bill. And it was sort of an act of Parliament that tidied up little bits of legislation concerning CCTV, um, biometrics in schools. It was sort of, it was, it was, um, sorry, protection of freedoms. It's sort of all the freedoms that they had considered had been overlooked by the previous administration, got sort of bunched into this bill. Uh, so quite a lot of politicians and privacy groups, we used to refer to it as the Christmas Tree Act because it had lots of different bits of baubles sort of hung all over it. Yeah. And so we got bunched into there in chapter two of the protection freedoms act 2012 when it got passed um is three clauses 26 28 which deals with schools asking for consent from parents so it's the first legal consent globally on a national level in the states i think it's about six or seven states that have got a similar consent on a state level but we were the first country to introduce um, an, a national consent for schools using fingerprints in schools and, and I was disappointed we couldn't get it an amendment to data protection act but I you know you, this was good because actually as far as the consent goes uh, under data protection parents are legally um, obliged to their kids data from the age of 16 under the protection of freedoms act parents that schools have to gain permission from parents up to the age of 18 so that you know it was the house of lords really that pushed for that extension from 16 yeah. to 18 so that was good and nothing has changed um, since then i'm sorry to to cut across no, no, you there because it's um this it, it's beyond fascinating this and at the same time time is flying so i want to ask you this 
you're bang on and you played a huge part in that. You and others, but you played a huge part yeah. in it. The Protection of Freedoms Act, passed in May 2012, requires, and I don't think anything has changed to this day, schools must gain written parental consent if they want to store a child's biometric data. And this, uh, sorry, th- this became law in September 2013. Now, nothing yeah. has changed, as far as I know. No, no, it's nothing's changed. And also as well, if one parent disagrees with another parent, the non-consent always overrides the consent. Is that right? And even, if both, and even if both parents consent and the child disagrees with the parents and says, actually, I'm not happy about my fingerprint being on a database, hurt that child's consent overrides the parents. Oh, the child's non-consent overrides the parents' consent. So it's very heavily, nicely biased to the non-consensual. And, the, and, and I think that's so important because I was I had talked to Clive last night, who was on your show I think last Wednesday. Yeah, that's right. And um, you could I could see tell from the conversation you had with him that both him and his daughter were slightly concerned about where's the information going, which is a great question because I have sent freedom of information requests to schools to ask them if they've been passing information on. Uh, and mostly they say they haven't. I've sent freedom of information requests to police authorities to see if they are accessing a school biometric database because the information on a school database is not a photograph of a fingerprint. It's a 40-digit number. It's sort of the, the, the scanner looks at the swirls and loops and the salient points on the fingerprint and creates this digital number from it, which, of course, is very easily transferable to... A, a different type of database and of course Europol, Interpol and the different lettered agencies and states all talk to each other if there's a person of interest they want so it's not difficult for that sort of information to be transferred. So when I sent freedom of information requests to the police over 80 to 85, easily 80 to 85 percent of the requests I get back are this is going to cost too much for us to answer, it's, we, we're exempt under section 12 so I've never really had an answer back from the police and I guess if they said yes, we have had access to a school fingerprint database, that that would be pretty major, not news. good information. And it would be but a if major they said news. No, story. I can imagine people sort of saying, "Well, why the hell not?" You know, yeah. What about prevent? What you know? So, so they're sort of stuck in a hard place at the moment. Just, just, to, just, 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 to, just to clear up what you said there. Very good point, Pippa made there. You know, if the school said, um, if the police said no. Um, you know, anti, I don't, I don't know if such people exist, but people who are concerned about terrorism uh, and prevent, which is a government strategy to deal with identifying uh, terrorists as young as you possibly could, they might ask, why are you not doing that? Pippa King is our guest, the expert on this issue here. You said to me a moment ago, when you sent freedom of information requests to schools, they mostly said they weren't passing it on. Did a school or more than one school say to you, Yes, we are sharing that information. Yes, I did have a school from Liverpool, high school from Liverpool, said they were sharing that information with social services. No way. And I went back to them because that, that was such such a nugget of information because that would have generated some some good media, certainly. And, uh, and I said, can I just clarify what you've just answered here? And they just went, oh, no, that was a mistake. And I thought, mm, don't know. <laughs> really? How can you make a mistake no, like that? Not like that. Yeah, that's it. So, uh, so yeah. I haven't got anything. But I mean, I think from from a parent's point of view and from a child's point of view, a school kid's point of view, I mean, obviously, primary school children 
I don't know. I don't, the technology isn't that prevalent in primary schools now because I think the biometric industry twigged that mums in the playgrounds were going to talk about it and it wasn't working. So it tends to be more used now for cashless catering and registration and library in secondary schools. But the issues that, that I've, I had with my kids doing, it was, you know, it's completely unnecessary. Uh, when, when you can have a pin or a swipe card and current data protection and the general data protection regulations GDPR state that biometrics should never be used with children if there's a viable alternative. It's a disproportionate amount of personal data to give up in order to access things like food, knowledge, access to areas. It's a giving a really unconscious, okay, well, if you want this, you got to give me your biometric. Not a good message, subliminal message sent to a child. No. Um, also, as well, you've got the potential of data transfer, um, and it desensitizes the next generation to sort of ask the questions of why are we giving our biometrics up when something else will suffice? It becomes and the norm, you mean? It becomes the norm. Yeah. Doesn't it? So yeah. I, those are just points. I mean, I, I, everybody to their own. I'm not in the business of telling people what to do if you're happy. Uh, that's fine because different people have different levels of privacy. All I wanted to do as a parent was have the option to say no or at least have the option to be told and have the option to say no. And sort of fr from 2005 to 2010, certainly schools were just doing it and not even telling parents. So, that, so that, that needed to change. I mean, but actually listening to Clive's story last week, he was a parent and he wasn't aware that his children or his child could get fingerprinted and from the child's point of view it sounded like the school hadn't offered an alternative so what if you say no to a school uh, you're not having my child's fingerprint the school have to by law and it's in the protection of freedoms act offer an alternative like a pin or a swipe card and the companies that supply biometric um, points of sale will know this and so they always have alternatives so it's not difficult for school to do that but I think just for ease of administration purposes I, in my experience I found that schools don't always let parents know what their rights are and they certainly don't let the kids know what their rights are because in actual fact the Protection of Freedom Act is the only piece of legislation where a child can say no to a school collecting data. It's the only piece, it's the only piece of legislation that works for them in school, that's on their side. Even as you said, if both parents would like the child to be fingerprinted, if the child says no, that's the end of the matter. Yeah, that's the end of the matter. But, but and, and, that's, and it's not, it's very difficult for... Uh, myself and certainly um, other privacy orgs to sort of highlight this because I mean it's probably the last thing that children are interested in sort of looking at their digital rights or their data protection rights but one of the things that I was keen to do because it is um, it's the only thing school children it's the only piece of legislation where they have a right to refuse was to sort of try and bring uh, the, you know not just the biometric but the wider digital footprint that they leave in schools into some sort of PHSE, you know, sort of bringing it as part of the curriculum because school children are one of the most data mined sections of society. I mean, the government's now running a, a live real-time register so they can see when every single school child is in and out of school. That got made live within the past year. Um, how does that was, work, Pippa? Explain how that works. That, that's really interesting. 
Well, I think uh, it was, it was, I'm not going to talk about this very loosely because I'm not the expert on this. It's, I have a friend, uh, Jen, another mum who runs uh, an organisation called Defend Digital Me. So if you really want to have a look at that, you can have a look on her website, which is defenddigitalme.org. But we work together quite closely. Um, but as, as far as I know, the government are now running a live register of the roundabout, at least in England anyway, the sort of seven million school kids of who's in school and who isn't in school. And I'm not, this is a plan that I think came together before the pandemic, but obviously since the pandemic, the attention rates, uh, attendance rates in schools have been a lot lower. And this is the, the sort of more of the reason for them to roll it out. Um, but there's, there's also things like, you know, um, if you are using Google Classrooms or whatever, my maths or whatever is being used in schools, it's not just the content that the child leaves in the homework that has data attached to it. There's the metadata. What time did they open the homework? What time did they send the homework in? So um, Jack Smith could have got a piece of maths homework, got home Friday night, thought, oh, I'll do that fills it in, gets to Sunday about half past 10, 11 o'clock at night, thinks, go on, send homework in, I'll just send it in. So the teacher gets up, or the company who supplies the software to the teacher can run reports on, well, Jack's cons consistently sending his homework in at half past 11 on a Sunday night. Is there a problem at home? You can make assumptions from not just the content of the homework, but the bits of data that are flagged around it. To build a picture so of Jack. To build. to build a picture of Jack, yeah. yeah. I mean, there was one there was one instance um, that I'd been told about, and again, it's not my own expertise, but there was one child that had used a, a school internet system to search for Black Panthers. Obviously, some sort of geography exercise, but yeah. um, it's a gang matrix name. And so that boy, unbeknownst to him and his parents, then gets put on a gang matrix list and flagged up to the authorities that he's possibly a gang member. So like and that. there's also and this is where it sort of gets creepy and this was happening in New York schools. Um, different programs that schools use can and do flag up certain words um, to identify well to keep the kids safe to identify possible self harm, bullying, gang membership. So so on those sort of school searches but certainly in the states there's been instances of school of, the, of microphones of computers at home being switched on by the child doing their homework so they're not just sort of looking at what you're typing and the speed you're typing or the speed at which you're turning pages in your ebook or if you're doing long multiplication faster than long division they're actively listening much like siri or alexa for words that are being spoken so not, I mean, that's that's sort of taking it to extreme. And no, I don't think it is. I don't think it is, to be honest. I, I, I get that completely. And 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 that's interesting to many different groups of people. We, we I talked about this last night with, with um a, a secondary school teacher, Rob Rob Wilson, and there are so many groups of people interested. So corporations want to know this, don't they? They want to yeah. know because they, future customers, they can tailor content and products for for Jack Smith. But then, as you said, the authorities want to know, as we, you know, day by day become more and more a surveillance state, want to know everything about everybody, what we're doing, where we're going, what time we're coming and going, who we're 
uh, consorting mm. with what we're saying, what our political interests are. It's all being built and nobody seems to care because I've asked parents about this. You know, parents who wouldn't know that I present a talk radio show and they just don't care. At least the ones I've met anyway. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting because um, fingerprints, leaving fingerprints to one side, it's gone one level further. There was a, an academy in, Semester Academy in Wolverhampton um, it's, it had um, installed an emotional detection system, but it had insisted that it's not taking photographs or any images of the kids, which it's not. It's looking at a kid's face digitally and, and encoding whether or not the kid is smiling, gazing out the window, fidgeting, da 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 da, da. Now, in, under the Protection Freedoms Act, the, um, any emotional biometric is classed as a biometric and the school should have asked permission from the parents and they didn't. So um, I started sending freedom of information requests to school because, of course, Intel and the tech industry were like, this is brilliant. You know, it's in a British school. This is a technology that's in China that's checking child's emotions in China. And, and the school was very, very keen to say, well, we're not identifying a particular child as being um, uh, disconnected or, or disinterested. All we're doing it for is just to look at all the faces as a whole and then we're going to send an emojo to the, the, the teacher's phone and the head teacher's phone so that the head teacher can see how the class as a whole is interacting with the lesson. So, you know, that, but that's not good enough because it's not going to stop there. It's going to be individual and then it's going to be preemptive because the artificial intelligence within the facial action coding system, which is what this system's called, will be able to preempt, right, okay, we, we can sort of, we can see the signs of what happens before a child gets up and walks out or a child gets up and hits another child. So you've almost got like pre-crime. Pre-crime, yeah. And now if you take that into a special educational needs setting, that is just disastrous. You know, you, and, and anyway, this particular company um, that's been doing it called SENS, S-E-N-S, um, have stopped and of course the school didn't pay for this equipment it was on trial it was research and development and this is what happens with schools in since 2005 we've had fingerprint systems we've had this emotional system we've had infrared palm scanning facial recognition and iris iris um iris readers in schools people don't know that because they've just these companies have gone quietly in there tested it well not very effective the fingerprint always works better hence why the fingerprints in school but there's one company called Cunningham's which is a catering company and in 2020 they installed a facial uh, recognition system in a skin Kingston Community College which is in Gateshead in in the northeast of England and so what it is is this particular facial uh, recognition system is being used for canteen so they, they didn't even take a photograph of the child to put on the biometric system as a as a marker as a reference for, for when the child takes its face to a scanner and for this scanner then to say to reference this photograph they actually slid the photographs over from the school information management system which all schools have and they all take photographs of children they put them on the system they repurposed the photographs that obviously the parents and the kids just thought was just on the computer for the facial recognition system and on further digging this company um, supplying 
the facial recognition system. This facial recognition system, obviously with kids, it's a little bit different with children and adults because children's faces change um, quite, quite a lot from sort of the age of 11 to 18. And so on their own promotional video on Cunningham's website, they said, oh, the algorithm grows with the child and it's consistently evolving the algorithm. So we've got a learning facial recognition technology given for free to, a, to this particular academy, this college in Gateshead. And all the other schools that Cunningham's have supplied with this, as far as I can tell through freedom of information, have not paid for it, which tells me this possibly could be technology that's not yet to market because if it was to market they'd be charging for it so they're it's trialing it and they're trialing it and developing it Pippa King is our guest folks do check out pippaking.blogspot.com nearly 20 years on this journey to raise awareness about the rights of children um, the, 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 the right of the right of every child to privacy and to say no you don't get to store or use or pass on my biometric data and she's over the years this has broadened out with Pippa into wider society public spaces you know um, the state of surveillance facial recognition software she talked about earlier on is it the case do you think I mean you said this earlier on about normalising it if some of my guests and some of the people you've bumped up against over the years when you've given talks you know, who believe that a technocratic surveillance state is being built around us. If that's true, let's just suppose it is true, well then it stands to reason that you start in school and by the time children who, who, who come face to face with this stuff in nursery school, in primary school, by the time they become 22, 23, they're leaving uni and they're going to work, it'll become perfectly normal. That's about right, isn't it? I think I think it is, but also as, as well, children and we are used to seeing CCTV cameras uh, and cameras and sensors all over the place. And I think what's happened over the years, essentially, the street furniture in our streets and and in our schools has stayed the same. It essentially looks the same, but what's going on behind it is not at all the same as it was even ten years ago. So sixty three percent of schools in the UK that have CCTV are using Chinese technology. And although the schools aren't using facial recognition, you know, so what cameras can do is they can detect if, if there's a gun shape, if there's an object that's left for too long in a hallway, they can detect if there's unusual movement by children, say running or something or fighting. These cameras have the capability to detect all that, uh, but the schools aren't using it at the moment. <laughs> Um, but it has it, all that sort of technology is there behind the camera. And, you know, we've got, I mean, the, the, the sad thing about it is the thing that is such a shame and, you know, is one more little crack in this country's um, sort of breakdown, I think, is that we've got a, an information commissioner who oversees the Data Protection Act, which basically was renewed in 2018. And we codified GDPR, which is the European General Data Protection Regulations, which were good, but they're only as good as the regulator who's going to enforce them. And so we complained to the Information Commissioner about the facial recognition used in schools. Uh, there was a case in Scotland in North Ayrshire where there were, I think, over two and a half to three thousand kids 
that we're on this facial recognition system. And the schools in Scotland don't have to ask for permission from parents because the Protection of Freedoms Act only applies to England and Wales. Um, so anyway, so that was a ripe picking for Cunningham's because they didn't have to uh, sort of deal with parents that didn't agree with it. So anyway, they, they facially recognised these children and we put a complaint into the ICO and they looked into it. Um, and they and this was they so started facially facially recognising these children in 2021 September and by October uh, they suspended it because the information commissioner's office went to go and have a look at it and I gave them all the information I had and said it's, I think it's a not to market technology it's it's got a learning algorithm in there um, basically it's being researched and developed in these schools so you need to ask who's supplying it because Cunningham's supply cash registers they're not in the business of inventing facial recognition technology there's, there's some i can't and i don't know where they're sourcing that from so anyway so far so it October might be a front hang on so cunningham's might be a front or not a shell company because it's a company that deals in cash well, registers. Yes, the company's been around for over two decades yeah. and all they've done is sell point of sale cash registers that's that's so business. so a company who might not want it to be known that it's doing this might be using Cunningham's as a middleman, possibly. Um, it's a possibility. Listen to this from I, Jan. I can't, I, I can't say that that's that's true. Um, no, no, but it, but, all but it's I can possible. All I say is yeah. that, that we've got form. We've done it with the facial recognition, the infrared palm scanners. Fujitsu put in Scottish schools ten years ago. Went to market. They were in Scottish schools twenty or seven. Went to market in twenty fifteen. The exact same scanner. They just and if it's if the schools aren't paying for this technology, then it's why would you not pay for technology that's commercially available yeah. on the market? We've but had anyway, a, just, yeah we've had a really interesting we've lots of look I say this every time I speak to somebody but it's true huge interest lots of messages coming in too many to read out but. Jan says she calls, uh, she labels the former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair as a ghoul. She says he professed in his Global Institute conference this year that all learners should have digital IDs to transform their education. Tony Blair. Well, this is something I spoke to you about, wasn't it? That's right. Very briefly, I think we texted last week about the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal 16.9 which is for everybody to have a digital ID at birth from 2030. So every birth after 2030 has a digital ID. And everything would be stored uh, and, and so, on it. Everything, every single thing everything. would be stored on it. Yeah. And so, so the UN are working with the World Bank and UNICEF to enable this to happen, which of course then, you know, what would be the World's Bank interest in registering babies in 2030? Well, it's, of course, the, the advancement of central digital currencies that everybody's the different sort of banks have been talking about so it's it's we need to be also aware that what's happening in schools um is a happening in society with people like the co-op and sports direct and uh different tesco's using photo recognition and aldi um that, that that's coming to a camera near you but also as well this sort of the the biometric digital id that was fought against in the noughties by no two ID and Privacy International is coming. It's going to be here in 2030. And Phil Booth, what a prophet. Absolutely right. Two, two or three decades, he said. And he's, he was on the ball. Do you on think, Pippa, do you think um, we've got about five, six minutes left, right? Thanks for coming back on today. I know you've got plenty of, of things going on at the moment. Do you think that 
that people will accept it. So, so, so in a couple of years' time, the talk becomes we we, we go we, we switch on a, a TV news channel or we open a newspaper, and there is lots of talk, excitable talk. Maybe there's a bit of pushback, but lots of talk about digital IDs and you know this will store everything. It'll be so convenient. It'll be so good for the kids and for our health and our our health security. How dystopian is that? The UK Health Security Agency. But anyway, so they say. So, so here it is. I still like to think that enough people will say no. I'm not having it. I think, I think, I think you're right. I think the past three years have made people, a lot of people, think more critically about how government treats them and how it uses their data. Um, I think it will create a two-tier society. I was heartened to hear that the amount of cash being used in the UK was yeah. up. <laughs> on whatever figure it was before um, and I think we've all got to take a little bit of responsibility because you know I, I, I'm in my sort of early 50s now and my kids are in their 20s and um, you know they're, they're aware of what I did and they're, they're critical thinkers and they they can see um, what's what's sort of going on which is good um, but that you know if we're not careful people who are unaware and aren't thinking critically will will take us as a society into some soap on some sort of open air open air prison complex basically where there's cameras i mean we all carry a phone and i, I do too you know i i and I'm, I'm not sure if it's switched off whether or not it's still working but anyway so we all are complicit really and it was funny because i somebody sent me a meme it was a person from the 1980s with a cassette player a cd a hi-fi a radio you know and and any and, and and, and the meme was underneath, oh, all this on one phone now. you know. And, and he said, oh, yeah, it's all the same, but it's in one place. I said, no, it's not the same because the trade-off is we now give our data to use everything that was data collection free 30, 40 years ago. And we've slowly, like a boiling frog, sort of wandered into this position where you can't listen to a podcast. You can't use your phone. You can't go on the internet. You can't check an email without somebody a big company let it you know knowing what you're doing whereas before you in the olden days you used to get a letter and open it nobody knew you'd read a letter nobody knew who you'd got it from yeah. so <coughs> or i could come around yours you have to sort of think of the incremental increases yeah i could come around yours because you might have a tv table for sale and yeah. that, you know, I want 60, you're not getting 60, baby. I'll give you 45 and that'll be it. And th that's that's only right. I mean, I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole now, but I've gone down this before in terms of, you know, I've already paid tax on the money I've earned. You've already paid tax. Yes. You've yes. paid VAT when you bought the table. So listen, here's the 45 quid. Thank you very much. None of that will be possible, especially if cash disappears. Yes. And, and also, again, I mean, it was seen with certain members of, uh, political groups, uh, they'll take the cash, they'll stop your bank account. How, how do you even have cash? You know, I think it's it's a very interesting time we're living in. I do sort of feel that boundaries are being pushed and tested with how, how far we, we'll go with the acceptance of uh, so, you know, like vaccine passports, um, facial recognition in, in supermarkets, that sort of thing, a cashless society. And I think, like I say, I, I'm... I'm heartened that I feel that a lot more people have been thinking more critically in the past three years and, and sort of looking at these aspects but um, just just to go back to the you know the kids 
I mean, they're the next generation. They, if we can, uh, hopefully they'll have some sense of, or, well, they're not having a sense of privacy that I had when I was their age because they're just not because of the data, you know, the data digital footprint they're leaving behind them. But if if there's one piece of legislation that gives them the opportunity to, to look after the one bit of data that is irreplaceable for them and they can't change it, it's the Protection of Freedoms Act. And through figures that I worked on, I worked on a big report last year, we think that about 85% of the school population in the UK will come out of school having left their fingerprints somewhere on a database. The government doesn't know the companies that are supplying. They don't know what they're doing with it. And, and when you can easily use a pin or a swipe card, I think it's prudent to minimise your data digital footprint, especially as a child, as much as possible, because you do not know when that might come back and bite you in years to come. Brilliant work, Pippa. Thanks for coming back on and um, updating us on, on, on what you've been doing. I, I mean it when I say this is about as important as any issue that I discuss on this programme, uh, Making trying to make people aware of it, to give them that information. Um, your website is pippaking.blogspot.com. Um, go there. And there are links on Pippa's uh, site as well to, to other sites. She works with others who are doing... Um, a lot to, to raise awareness of, of these issues. Um, great TED Talk as well on there, on Pippa's, web, uh, on Pippa's website, so get on there. Listen, um, great to have you back on. Uh, these days, you're living on the water. Yes. <laughs> wow. I um, and, and sort of looking at the energy bill that's just gone through Parliament, I'm pretty pretty pleased I am. I took the plunge. I, I've owned a house since I was 20, and I decided after 30 years of owning houses that I wanted to live on a boat. So I invested... Uh, from the sale of a house into a boat. So I now live on a a 33-foot yacht in Essex. And how has it been? And how do you feel about it, um, about the move? I'm one of those, it takes me a while. I have, you know, imposter syndrome when I move to a new area or a new place. It takes me a while to settle in. uh, I've been on two and a half years now and it's been probably one of the happiest times and most peaceful times of my life. It's... uh, you know, being near water, we're made up of 78% water. Um, I won't pretend it's not particularly harsh in winter, but it certainly makes you aware of your surroundings and you have a new respect for the environment, I have to say. But And also, so the community here, are we do have quite a few people that live, live aboard and uh, uh, we're all pretty much singing from the same hymn sheet which is a nice thing to do we're all a bit weird because we live on a boat so that sort of that sort of says it all no clued in i would imagine not weird don't yeah, um, yeah, yeah. don't be a stranger when things are happening uh, get get in touch and and, and come back on and uh, just once again thanks again for today i really appreciate you pippa thanks for your work Oh, well, thank you for having me on, and it's, it's lovely to catch up. Thank you. You're very welcome. Uh, Pippa King, live on The Richie Allen Show, Tuesday's programme, uh, pippaking.blogspot.com. Kevin reckons it'll be in place before people realise because it's receiving zero coverage on the mainstream media, and not to bang the drum again. But this is why the... Can you help me out, maybe? Drop me a message through The Richie Allen Show app. Help me come up with a more interesting way of describing those behind these agendas. I say the agenda, the system, the establishment. There must be a better way. Whatever is behind it, it it, it presents its own opposition. It says to those who might 
resisted. Here's the opposition, right? The heroes of the the trucer industrial complex, maybe. Uh, these new channels like GB News or New Asian and Talk TV. And Kevin has made a brilliant point, you know. You, you, you might not agree with me saying this, and I totally respect you not agreeing with me saying it. It's lovely, actually, a bit of disagreement. Like I said, there's too much consensus, and maybe we'll have a good ding-dong on a phone-in real soon. But um, even if you disagree with me, just consider it. Look at these channels and these new truthers who emerged during uh, the COVID thing. What are they not discussing? What are they not doing? And then I want you to juxtapose the new alt media or the more recent additions to the alternative media. Look at what they're not covering. And then look back to the the noughties, 2003, 4, 5. Look at the early part of the 2010s. And I guarantee you, if you look at the content creators from that particular time, you'll find that nothing was taboo. Nothing. They would talk about everything. Harp, you know, messing with the ionosphere. Chemtrailing. Now, whether any of that is real or not, that's up to people to decide for themselves. You know, that's what they were doing. It's what we've done on this show since forever. We talk about everything. Everybody. Every issue. It doesn't matter what it is. And let people say it. So you look at what they're not doing and what they're not talking about. The things they will never get into. And Kev is making the point. On GB News and Talk TV, the so-called home of free speech in the UK, there is no discussion of any of these topics. You know, what's happening with the biotech, what's happening to children in schools. You know, they'll talk about, you know, the, the teaching of queer theory in schools. Yeah, it's good to talk about that. But they won't talk about the fact that children are being groomed in schools to accept this technocratic surveillance society, the metaverse and all the rest of it. None of that is, uh, is discussed. It's almost verboten on, on these programmes. Geoengineering, the list goes on and on and on. So good point, Kev, and that's about it for a Tuesday's programme. I'm back with you tomorrow again, Wednesday at 5 o'clock UK time. A thousand thanks to Pippa King for coming on again today. Uh, I have two fascinating guests for you tomorrow. You don't want to miss tomorrow's programme. Uh, we won't be talking about Russell. Oh, we will. We will a little bit. <laughs> um, somebody who is convinced that brand has been set up and is um, well able to articulate that will be on the programme with me tomorrow, so you'll get the other side of that. And we'll talk about something completely different in hour two. Until tomorrow then, it's bye from me, leaving it with Elton John. Bye. Elton is in the Illuminati, by the way. Apparently. <laughs>